0: Just a quick word of introduction uh, for our first speakers this morning. We have, uh, in order, Dr. John F. Crosby, a co-founder of the Hildebrand Project, professor of philosophy at Franciscan University of Steubenville, the founder and director for many years of the graduate program in philosophy. Dr. Crosby has devoted his career to philosophical personalism, the development of this personalist vision, He was a student himself of Dietrich von Hildebrand in the last 11 years of von Hildebrand's life, and also a student and disciple um, in the early years of the papacy of John Paul II of John Paul himself through through my father's teaching for many years at the Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome. We also have with us Mark Spencer, professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Mark is among many other professional associations an associated scholar, of the Hildebrand project, where he is a fellow in metaphysics and aesthetics. Mark is uh, one of our great collaborators in this work of spreading personalist thought. And we're very happy to be featuring him and Dr. Crosby this morning as we introduce the topic of our seminar. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to, um, to Dr. Crosby. Right,
1: thank you, Brother John Henry, and welcome everyone to our week together in this seminar on the personalist vision. Now you will wonder what exactly the personalist vision of the individual human being is. What is it about man that, especially that is especially stressed by personalism and gives rise to a personalist vision of man? I'll address this and then uh, my Friend Mark Spencer will follow up along the same line. There is a mysterious individuality of the human person. It lies in the fact that each person is unrepeatable, can never be replaced by another person. Persons are never interchangeable with each other. If a person goes out of existence for good, a hole is created in the world that can never be filled by any subsequent person. So this is the aspect of the personless vision that I want to introduce. Let me explain this by way of a contrast. Within plant species, and within many animal species, individuals are interchangeable with each other, but individual human persons are not interchangeable. With flowers, for example, it is important only that there be some individual instances of a flower species. But whether the individual that instantiates the species be this individual or that one makes no difference. They are interchangeable with each other in all the different kinds of interest we can possibly take in flowers. There is no basis for preferring this individual flower to that equally good instance of the same flower species. All we can possibly want is a flower of a species. Any healthy flower will do, but this one can always be replaced by that one. If a flower wilts and dies, but reproduces itself before dying, then its offspring completely replaces the parent flower. And anything that could have interested us in the parent flower will interest us equally in the offspring. The offspring is so interchangeable with the parent that there is no sense of loss about the death of the parent. The individual flower is completely dominated by its species. It is a mere carrier of it, a mere instance of it. This is what makes flowers interchangeable with one another. And what makes it impossible for our interest in flowers to fix precisely on this one here, to the exclusion of all others of the same species. But <clears throat> with human persons, it is completely Different. They are not dominated in the same way by the human species, but as has often been said, each person stands in a sense above the human species, or better, each contains something in excess of the human species, or contains some personal identity irreducible to the identity we have as a human being. Consider the different kinds of interest we can take in a human person. We can take an interest in one person that does not extend to others, but is only an interest in this one. If this one is my friend, then a replacement is absolutely out of the question. There is no one with whom he or she is interchangeable. I do not just want a friend of a certain description, but I want this one. There are no other, the death of a human being who was my friend inflicts a sense of loss such that no subsequent human person can possibly compensate for that loss. So what I wanna say is that we can't begin to understand the personalist vision of man if we fail to grasp the abundance of individual being that we point to when we say something in excess of the humankind, something more than an instance or carrier of it, something that prevents it from being interchangeable with every other human being. Now, you might think that this has been known for a long time and that I'm just belaboring the obvious. Is there really here some new insight of personalism? The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor helps us to answer this question. Speaking of the German thinker Herder, Charles Taylor writes, Herder put forward the idea that each of us has an original way of being human. Each person has his or her own measure. is his way of putting it. This idea has entered very deep into modern consciousness. It is also new. Before the late 18th century, no one thought that the differences between human beings had this kind of moral significance. There is a certain way of being that is my way. I am called upon to live my life in this way and not in imitation of anyone else's. But this gives a new importance to being true to myself." End of that quote from Charles Taylor. And in another work, uh, he's exploring this new sense of the significance of differences among human beings. And he says, the differences are not just unimportant variations within the same basic human nature, or else moral differences between good and bad individuals. Rather, they entail that each one of us has an original path, which we ought to tread. They lay the obligation on each of us to live up to our originality. Charles Taylor is clearly aiming at what I have been calling the unrepeatability of each person.
2: And he clearly wants
1: to say that we are today aware of this unrepeatability in a way in which people were not aware of it even just a few centuries ago. He even wants to say that a growing sense of persons as unrepeatable is a defining feature of our time. Now, we philosophers work out our ideas by raising objections to them. Uh, One objection uh, to what I've been saying is that we often treat human persons as interchangeable and do so without offending anyone's moral sensibilities. For example, a job description is drawn up and someone is hired who fits it well. When that person leaves the job, someone else is hired, who we can easily imagine equally well fits the job description. So the first holder of the job is completely replaced by the second holder of it. Aren't the two workers interchangeable? This objection would have force only if the job description completely expressed the identity of a worker who corresponds to it. But in fact, the job description abstracts from most of the identity of the worker. It certainly abstracts from his unrepeatable identity as person. The job description picks out a few skills of a worker that happened to be of interest to his employer and prescinds from everything else in the worker. These skills can indeed be repeated in different workers, but this in no way interferes with the personalist idea that at a deeper level, there is something in each of the workers that is unrepeatable. And notice this, extraordinary fact, The job description is clearly articulated in concepts. Very definite things are specified as wanted by the employer. Whereas the unrepeatable mystery of a person cannot be conceptualized at all. It is ineffable, unutterable. It clearly lies in a much deeper place in the person than the place where job skills are found. But there's a more challenging objection that might uh, be raised and perhaps is on your minds as you listen to me. Some say that this stress on the unrepeatability of each person is dangerous. It obscures what we have in common. So the objection goes and exaggerates what divides us. In order to avoid a bad, destructive individualism, we have to stress solely objection above all else, what we have in common and forget about what is my own and not another's. The best way to answer this objection is to point to the experience of loving a person. We love a person when we have a vision of the person as unrepeatable. In fact, no one sees the mystery of the unrepeatable person like the one who loves him or her. Without love, we see only attractive qualities in a person, qualities that can exist in other persons. So we may be drawn to a person in virtue of his intelligence and humor, but we do not really love that person because we will be even more drawn to someone else who has greater intelligence or greater humor. We love the qualities, not the person. But the truth of love is this. This is a fundamental personalist affirmation that our love is love for the other person and not just for his or her lovable qualities. And our love reaches the other person only when we apprehend the other as unrepeatable person. Now back to the objection that we undermine the unity of all persons when we stress the unrepeatable identity of each. How could we possibly undermine the unity of all persons if it is precisely the unrepeatable identity of a person that, when experienced, awakens in us love for that person? If persons are brought together mainly by love, And if love for a person is engendered by the sight of the unrepeatable mystery of that person, then our insistence on the unrepeatability of each person, far from isolating persons from each other, enables us to understand how it happens that persons can come to be united in love. To this response, I would add that, The kind of differences among people that lead to conflict are differences in virtue of which some people feel superior to others. So Greeks feel superior to barbarians and men superior to women and whites superior to blacks and so on. But the unrepeatable mystery of a person does not establish a person in a position of superiority or inferiority to others. Rather, as unrepeatable persons, we are incommensurable with one another. We exist in a space in which there are no hierarchical rankings. I would just add that our common human nature is indeed a significant bond of unity among us human beings, just as the objection claims. Our friend, David Brooks, who will speak this afternoon has thought deeply about this communitarian dimension of personalism. Uh, So it's certainly true that bad things happen when we lose sight of this primordial unity that we have as fellow human beings. But equally bad things happen when we treat persons as interchangeable. Our unity as sharers in human nature is a unity based not on fusion or on blending, but on the unrepeatable identity
2: of each
1: person. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Crosby. Uh, yeah. And. Uh... I wanna pick up right there and uh, and develop a number of, of further themes that are central uh, insights of personalism. So Dr. Crosby discussed uh, how persons are uh, unrepeatable and how we are uh, not reducible to uh, merely being instances of the human species. Uh, and I wanna pick up on that theme of irreducibility, because I think this is a real central insight of Uh, of personalism, that human persons are uh, not reducible to anything non-personal. That is, we can't say of human persons that we are nothing but, and then fill in the blank with anything other than uh, a person. Uh, That is, it's not the case that we are nothing but matter. We are not just our bodies. We are not just parts of society. Uh, Furthermore, uh, we are not just Uh, expressions of uh, other person's intentions, even God's. Uh, That is, uh, I am not merely an instrument uh, of God, uh, much as I I ought to conform myself to the divine will. Uh, I am self-possessed. I belong to myself. This, I think, is is one of the key insights of of personalism. Uh, Dr. Crosby mentioned uh, the expression experience of love as a motivation for thinking that human persons are uh, are not reducible, are not repeatable. Uh, Let me mention a couple of other pieces of evidence that personalists turn to in order to motivate this idea of irreducibility. Uh, One experience that a lot of personalists turn to is this experience that we have of our own subjectivity. I experience myself as a self, I experience my acts as my own. When I think, when I will, when I love, uh, when I just feel things in my body, I experience these acts uh, as belonging to myself. Uh, This experience of subjectivity is prime evidence that I am not reducible to uh, my matter, my physical structure, uh, merely being a part of society. I experience this self-possession. Uh, One particular sort of subjective experience that personalists often turn to uh, is not just subjectivity in general, but the experience of freedom. Uh, I experience myself not just as belonging to myself, but as being able to determine myself. I am able to, within certain limits, uh, determine the course of my own life. Uh, Not only do I choose among options, say I go to a a restaurant and I choose things off the menu, I'm not just choosing things out there in the external world, I'm choosing uh, what I am going to become. I am governing the course of my own life. Uh, So this experience of being able to determine myself is yet further evidence uh, that I am not nothing but something other than a person. When personalists uh, uh, think about the human person, they often think about persons as having, as it were, sort of two poles, two aspects. And Dr. Crosby touched on this a bit towards the end of his his talk. I experience myself as belonging to myself, There's a sense in which I am uh, sort of in solitude, uh, even sort of isolated from other people in so far I belong to myself and have all of my acts uh, as my own. That's one pole, this belonging to myself, being separated from all other people. But on the other hand, because I am free, because I possess myself, I am able to give myself as a gift to others. This can happen through love relationships, like Dr. Crosby talked about. can happen through friendship, through marriage, through entering into political life, uh, as a teacher, giving myself to my, my students through discussion and and lecture, uh, through a parent giving themselves to their child, lots of different sorts of relationships, we are able to give ourselves, uh, make a a gift of ourselves to others. So we've got these two poles. On the one hand, we are in solitude. We belong to ourselves. On the other hand, we are open to others. A lot of personalists emphasize the fact that we are fundamentally dialogical beings, that is, we are beings in dialogue, in conversation with others. Uh, Although I possess myself, uh, although I cannot fully belong to anyone other than myself, uh, I only become a self in conversation, in relationship with with other people. And we see this in, in young children, the way in which they come into a sense of themselves through a relationship with their parents, their friends, and so forth. Uh, But we see it in adults as well. In order for me to have a sense of my own identity, a sense of this belonging to myself, uh, I need to enter into relationship with others. Uh, So again, there we see these two poles. I belong to myself. I am separate from other people. And yet I go beyond myself and enter into uh, relationship with others. Uh, Hence, personalism thinks, as Dr. Crosby emphasized, that we have a fundamental solidarity with all other persons. Uh, That is, we're in this together. Uh, Human beings belong in community uh, with other people, Uh, but a community based around uh, not power relationships, uh, but based on self-gift, in which I make a gift of myself to others and I receive others giving themselves uh, to me. Uh, Historically speaking, Personalism developed uh, in opposition to uh, a number of depersonalizing uh, movements. So personalism really gets going uh, towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, in opposition to movements like totalitarianism and fascism and communism and other sorts of ideologies which would reduce the person to merely being a part uh, of society. But personalism also arises in opposition to to individualism, to views that would see us as uh, entirely just isolated individuals, entirely self-interested individuals, just looking for our own fulfillment, our own flourishing, the satisfaction of our own rights and and needs and desires. Uh, Personalists frequently contrast uh, being a person to being an individual. Individual emphasize that isolated uh, aspect of the person. Person, on the other hand, uh, balances the fact that I, I do belong to myself uh, and yet I am inherently open to others. Uh, so a, a personalist vision is always going to, uh, to emphasize that aspect of self-gift. Uh, one final uh, feature of persons Uh, That I want to mention here as as I think a real central insight of personalism is personalists often emphasize that human beings are spiritual beings, and I want to explain uh, what this means. Uh, So to be spiritual uh, means precisely what I've been talking about this ability to go beyond the self and make contact uh, with others. We do this through our intellectual activity when we grasp the reality of other persons and and non-personal beings. Uh, We do this through our wills when we uh, make a sincere gift of self to another and determine my life to go in a direction whereby it is open to others. We do this through our our feelings uh, when these feelings are open to being moved by others For example, when I am moved by the beauty of a a painting, a musical work, or another person, uh, when I am moved by by adoration for God, moved by devotion to another person or or to a noble cause, uh, each of these experiences of going beyond myself, giving myself over to to something other or someone other than myself is what's meant by uh, the spirituality the human person. Now, when we talk about, when personalists talk about persons as spiritual, this is not meant to be in opposition to uh, being physical or bodily beings. Uh, We are, on, on many personalists formulation of it, embodied spirits or incarnate spirits. I live my spirituality, my being a spirit through my body, my perceptual acts, my physical Uh, actions that I perform towards others uh, can be entirely spiritual. So Dr. Crosby talked about how we are not the same as other animals, not mere instances of a species, and we see this in the way in which we live out our bodily lives. Human beings uh, don't just merely act uh, in a purely biological or purely physical way, rather our biology, our physical aspects have been taken up into our spiritual life. Uh, such that the things I do with my body express my intellect, my will, my affections, uh, and so forth. So there's going be an emphasis on the spiritual, but without any hint of, of a sort of dualism uh, or an opposition between spirit and uh, body. The only opposition that personalists are going to emphasize is this opposition between person and individual, which represent two ways in which I can live out my life. Do I live it out in a, a selfish manner, a way that is entirely focused on just satisfying my own private needs. That's being an individual. Do I live out my life in a way that is open to others, giving myself to others? That's to live fully uh, as a person. Uh, We will see as as we go along through the rest of the sessions today and and the rest of this week that there are a great many other insights that personalists provide to us. But I think uh, between what Dr. Crosby and I have talked about that we've got a, a good basis here, I think, for getting started. Thanks to everyone for being here. Yeah,
0: Thank you, Mark. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you both very much for those, um, those thoughtful opening remarks. So um, I would point out to you both as speakers that you're welcome to take a look at the questions that are coming in through the chat. Um, I will lead off with a couple of them here and continue to invite our audience to submit the questions through the chat feature. There are a number that are coming through the, excuse me, the Q&A feature. There are a number coming through the chat, but we'll be looking specifically in the Q&A function for your questions. So a question that's been raised in a couple of different ways by several speakers here have to do with this issue of self-possession and God. So I'll read one question. In what sense are persons self-possessed rather than belonging to God? It seems true that God is more myself than I am to this person's quoting this kind of language that we see often among the mystics um, and in discussions of our sense of divine providence and so on, God being closer to me than I am to myself. And a related question, uh, which I'll just pose at the same time, is how can beings which are so individual to be unrepeatable have one and the same final end? Do not Christians believe that we all have one and the same final end, the beatific vision? So maybe those are two good questions to. Um, Posed to both of you in an effort to also clarify the concepts that you all have been presenting here. So I'll let let, let uh, Professor Crosby, maybe I'll I'll let you go first, uh, and then Mark, you can say something. I have to apologize to the audience. I think I'll be struggling between Dr. Crosby and dad throughout this. For those of you who who were wondering, it is indeed the case. (laughs) Father and son here. Anyways, Dr. Crosby. All right.
1: Thank you, Mr. Crosby, founder of the Kilderbrand Project. Uh, and take that first question on the self-possession of persons. Uh, I think that everything we would want to say about belonging to God and um, even being filled with God uh, and possessed by God coheres in the end with the fact that We belong to God as person. God doesn't forget the different kinds of things he's created. Uh, And so it's not as if this belonging of each person to himself is canceled out by the fact that it's God that I'm related to. Uh, One way in which Carol Wojtyla, great personalist about whom we'll be speaking a little later, uh, stresses this is to show what respect God has for the free yes of each person. Uh, He uh, doesn't coerce, uh, 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 yes, he respects our freedom. And if our answer is no, um, he respects even that. So I think one can say that he wants a union with himself, uh, which is an exercise of that free self-gift of which Mark spoke. He doesn't absorb us in a way that, uh, you know, shuts down this belonging of the person to himself and the capacity for making a free gift of himself. Uh, it would be, I think, a really bad depersonalization of of us human persons if we thought of God as somehow absorbing, inhabiting, completely taking over, reducing us to a mere extension of himself. That would be violence done by God to his own creation. That's just not the way uh, he calls us and uh, works with us. So, uh, yeah, I'd want to hold fast to self-possession, self-gift, self-determination, even, or rather most of all, in relation to God. Yes, yeah, Mark, you may want to add something yeah, to that.
2: Yeah, I would agree with all of that. Um, so the the question sort of posed this in, in Augustinian terms, right? St. Augustine talks about how God is, is more interior to me than my inward self, right? So there's a sense in which, I uh, uh, God is more me than I am myself. And I I think that's an insight that the the personalist can appropriate, but in a particular way. So uh, on this sort of all older St. Augustine sort of of view, um, creatures have their properties uh, by sharing in God's properties. Uh, So so beautiful things have their beauty by sharing in God's beauty and good things have their goodness by sharing in God's goodness. The world is a sort of uh, expression or, or, or sacrament of God. Um, And I think the personalist can pick up on this idea, uh, where human beings, human persons, share in God uniquely, or or persons in general, I suppose angelic persons would as well, Um, where we share in God is we share in his freedom. Uh, so, So God is not only perfect and infinite goodness and beauty and truth and so forth, but God is perfect freedom. And what God has done on this personalist vision, I I think we could say, is God has given us a a genuine share uh, in that freedom. But to share in God's freedom, to share in freedom, uh, requires that we be genuinely free. And to be free uh, is to, uh, in a sense, be separated from others uh, to the extent that I need to be able to possess that freedom so that I can use it to make that gift of self that, that Dr. Crosby was talking about. Uh, and, and so there's a sense here in which we can enter into the very deepest sort of relationship with God precisely because we share in, in Him in this distinctive way. To, to the other part of the, uh, to the other part of the question about the human end, um, I think that most personalists are going to want to uh, sort of balance two aspects here. So Dr. Crosby talked about how we do have a common nature. Right? We are all, Uh, human beings, we have human nature, and human nature gives us certain powers, certain abilities, and those abilities can only be perfectly fulfilled by reaching certain ends, certain goals, and uh, on the Christian vision, the end that's going to most perfectly satisfy and fulfill all our powers is union with God, Uh, but the personalist is also going to emphasize that we're not just instances of that common nature, but we are Uh, distinctive, that we have something in excess uh, of that nature. And so the way in which I live out human nature, the way in which I live out those human powers is going to be distinctive to me. Uh, You know, uh, Dr. Crosby and I each have an intellect, but we express that intellect in distinct ways. We each have a will, but we express that will in distinct ways, precisely because we are distinct persons. And so I think the personalist is going to want to say, uh, although the end of every created person is union with God, uh, that union is different in some way for each person. The way in which I shall be united to God, the way in which God gives himself to me and I give myself to God is different than the way Dr. Crosby does. Yeah, um,
0: Dr. yeah, Crosby. No,
1: that, uh... That seems to me quite right. That idea that Charles Taylor brings up this distinct measure uh, of humanity that I alone live. Uh, Why shouldn't that uh, play into and um, um, somehow give a a stamp to the final union uh, with God? That I hope to have. Uh, Some personalists have suggested too that this idea of the image of God should be thought like this, that each person through their personal uniqueness image is something a little different. It's the same God, but still there is uh, an imaging that uh, I alone, that, that maybe brings out the special dignity of person that each one of us can image some particular glory or mystery of God uh, that we alone image and is tied to our being this person.
2: Uh, Dr. Jim Beauregard asks in the, the chat, um, uh, in dialogical personalism, person is sometimes seen as uh, created uh, by a relationship. And I, I spoke in my remarks about how uh, we are only fully persons uh, in our relationship with others. And Dr. Beauregard asks, is, is this problematic? Uh to say that dialogue or interaction is prior ontologically, that is more fundamental to being a person, or is it better to see that persons are more fundamental and that we're drawn out by relations with others? And uh, I I take it that a big worry here, and maybe this is a worry that many of you had as as I made my remarks, is it makes it sound that uh, persons are not persons until we enter into that relationship with persons, such that, say, uh, babies would not be persons. Right. in as much they, as they can't enter into this fully conscious relationship with persons. Um, men, some mentally impaired persons or cognitively impaired persons might not be uh, persons, it might sound like. Uh, and I certainly want to block that implication. That's, that's certainly not the view of the personalists that we'll be discussing here uh, this week. Nevertheless, uh, personalists want to emphasize this aspect of uh, relationality. Uh, Persons are beings who are in relation. Uh, But that relationality is more fundamental than conscious relationality. To be a person is always to be in relation with other persons uh, because persons are created, persons are brought into existence by other persons. So to be what I am is to be in relationship with God who created me. It's to share in God's freedom, God's attributes, God's love. Uh, to be a person is to uh, be brought into existence by other human persons. And so have a relationship in what I fundamentally am to those other human persons, uh, whether I'm conscious of it or not. So I think the, the personalist wants to say both, uh, we are fundamentally relational, and that is more fundamental than any conscious relations we enter into but we sort of fully come into our own by consciously living out those those relationships. Um, And so there's sort of a relationality on both sides
1: there. Maybe one could introduce, uh, Mark, what do you think uh, the uh, concept from the Aristotelian metaphysics of a being actualizing itself and say that in our encounter with other persons, we're not brought into being out of nothing. Uh, we bring an already existing personhood, but that personhood can be actualized. The fullness of self-possession, of the capacity for self-gift, for self-transcendence, all of that gets actualized in the encounter with other persons, especially love-like encounters. Uh, so we think of uh, others as giving us not our very being uh, as persons, but actualizing it. Uh, that um, perhaps captures the distinction you uh, were rightly making.
0: Thank you. There are a number of questions here that, ask, um, that imply either a word, well, I should say, imply not a critique by the questioners, but a worry about the use of the term person itself. So I wanna read just one question from our our friend in in Poland, Paweł Pias, who mm-hmm. asks whether there's a risk that the concept of person is a kind of cultural artifact of Judeo-Christian culture, and he mentions that there's empirical data indicating that there's an important difference between Western cultures and Eastern cultures on the understanding of this concept. And we, you know, I think, most of us are familiar with this: that in the West, we tend to think of ourselves first as individuals and then members of a group, and and that that's that conceptual. Um, hierarchy is reversed often in Eastern cultures with the sense of being a member of a community coming prior to that strong sense of the of the individual. And I can add to that uh, an article I recently read in the New York Times in which it was observed that when, for example, in an Asian family, a family member gets cancer, often the family doesn't inform that family member and simply makes all the decisions about the care on that person's behalf. So that perhaps is an extreme and maybe not in, uh, maybe not true in every instance, but I think in in a Western context, we would find that to be, um, quite problematic. So I wonder if either of you could comment on this concern that we're speaking about this, this notion of the person in very metaphysical and philosophical, a strong sense of, um, of having come upon the essence of something, but there's this, uh, perhaps this pushback that we we're we're neglecting to, uh, to recognize the, um, The historical or cultural dimensions of the concept of person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe one just to jump in, or did you, Mark, want to? No, please go ahead. Yeah. You know, I think of the uh, fundamental uh, personalist idea that, you know, persons are never rightly used in an instrumental way, uh, never rightly treated as mere parts of a whole, like the cells in an organism. Uh, and it, it, it seems to me that that notion, persons are violated when instrumentalized, um, has wide resonance in the consciences of people East and West. Uh, and, and that's a sign of of person who, as, as being something real and transcultural uh, that is, uh, somehow making itself felt in uh, uh, thinking and moral judgment so uh, that's certainly no construct that uh, or peculiarity of a particular culture that persons are never right the use of anything is transcultural surely that is and that points to uh, a certain you might say essential structure of the Human person that we are aiming at uh, by using the term "person." Well, Mark. What, what do you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would. Add to that? I, I think the the questioner is right to note that the the concept of person uh, as we're using it and and the term person uh, certainly has a a Western history. Uh, we find roots of this idea of person uh, certainly in the. The, the controversies over the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ. It gets developed a great deal there in the in the Christian tradition. Uh, we find it earlier in uh, the use of, of words that eventually turn into the English word person uh, in the, the Greek theater, right? Where the person is the, the mask or the role that uh, an actor plays. We find it in the, the Roman legal tradition. Um, but we also find analogs uh, or uh, cognates of the, uh, of the word person in, uh, the Indian languages, uh, where there's a similar sort of, of, of concept. Um, but it certainly has been developed uh, in the West. That said, I would just emphasize what, what Dr. Crosby said. The the ideas here, uh, this idea of uh, needing to make a gift of ourselves, needing to transcend ourselves, to aim at what is spiritual, to aim at what is higher, um, all of those sorts of things we find uh, quite well developed in uh Eastern religions and cultures and and also uh, Native American and African and lots of, I mean, any human culture has these, uh, these ideas. Um, so I would think what, the, the way we should think of this is the, the concept of person as it has developed in the West is uh, developing features of human life, emphasizing features of human life that uh, everybody everywhere experiences, but you uh, maybe have not been thematized as well as they should have Yeah.
0: Been. Mm-hmm. Well, we have time for just uh, perhaps one more question. I don't know if either of you are drawn to anything that you see in the, in the chat. And while you, while you all take a look, let me just say to all of you submitting these wonderful questions that obviously um, we have 35 questions. Uh, here and now, we, we won't be able to address that number in every panel. So what I think I'm trying to do and what our other panelists, uh, moderators will try to do is to um, recognize that some of these questions uh, have entire sessions devoted to them. And so rather than trying to answer them um, in this context, um, for example, questions around sexuality or embodiment, um, those, are, those are questions that will come Um, in sessions still to come. So don't feel neglected. Keep the questions coming. They're very, very good. Um, We will also um, be be looking through these questions as we put together the very final panel uh, in which we will take as a question uh, the topic of the seminar, which is what is the personalist vision? In other words, looking back on the conversation we'll have had uh, these four and a half days, uh, is there anything that has emerged um, with particular clarity and force? So Please keep the questions coming um, and know that we are um, through this seminar itself, attempting to to answer all of them. Um, Mark or Professor Crosby, any any particular questions that stand out here that you'd like to comment on? Some of them are addressed to you um, directly.
2: I have one here. Uh, Patrick Jobst asks, uh, how do you contrast the radical freedom of Sartre and the modern world with the type of freedom that is essential to personalism. Is it a matter of metaphysical truths accepted in the Catholic tradition? That is God exists and Sartre's rejection of essence that leads his brand of freedom into a vastly different ethical space uh, than the personalist. So Sartre, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the mid mid 20th century French existential philosopher has this idea of, uh, of freedom as Uh, sort of radical self-creation, I decide what I become. I don't have a nature given to me by God. Uh, There's no sort of moral law implanted within me that I am beholden to. Uh, Rather, I decide what I am going to become. Uh, And and obviously, from what Dr. Crosby and I have said, that the personalist vision is is rather different uh, in as much as uh, personalists, at least Christian personalists, Uh, have this idea that human beings do have a common nature, that we are beholden to to living in accord with that nature, and that we do have uh, an end given to us by God. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, I think that personalists can learn a great deal from uh, people like Sartre uh, and and other contemporary philosophers who emphasize our radical freedom. Uh, Although on the personalist vision, we uh, ought to live in accord with our given nature, and we ought to pursue union with God. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, on this vision, uh, there is a genuine sense in which it is radically up to me whether I will do that or not. Uh, And so I think a genuine sense in which the personalists can say, uh, I I do create myself. I do determine the course of my own life. Uh, Not in the sense that I don't have a God-given nature, uh, but in the sense that I have to appropriate that for myself or not. It is up to me whether I am going to live in accord with it. Uh, or not I have to put the stamp of my uh, sort of my own owning it possessing it right? appropriating it for myself uh, or not uh, and so for for that reason I think the the personalist can accept a great deal of the the modern uh, conception of freedom uh, but with these very important additions
0: maybe just to uh... T- tie this, this line of questioning up with one final question to you, Dr. Crosby, um, because I think this reflects maybe a, um, this, this would allow for a certain sharpening of the concept of self-determination. Question is, uh, there are so many ways in which we can't determine our own lives, given our formation situations, personal, uh, personal circumstances, historical circumstances. Could we, could we comment further on how a person can determine his or her path Within the, the context of all of these limits, so what I hear there is that this this language of self-determination, self-creation, um, may strike some people as, um, uh, as you know maybe more of an ideal than something that they they feel that they can realize right. in their own right. immediate lives. Right. So, in what respect in what respect does is self-determination and self-creation possible even in circumstances with extraordinary limits? Yeah. Uh, for exa- Yeah. Well,
1: you know. Uh, uh, the- Point is often made that uh, people uh, who are dealt a very hard hand in life, with many deprivations, still uh, have the power in their self self determination of saying yes to those circumstances and working with them and finding the possibilities that are always there in hard and. Uh, Great deprivation. So uh, when when you survey your condition and see how much uh, is already set for you, uh, how the, somehow the terms of your existence are already set without your consent, there is still, uh, like the great Kierkegaard said, this choice you have. Do you will to be the self that you are? Or do you, in rebellion, refuse to be that self? That's a profound act of self-determination. And it's exercised just in relation to this already givenness of the circumstances of life. And it's not just a servile acceptance. As I say, of our experience is that all kinds of possibilities show up uh, when hard circumstances are uh, accepted in a grateful spirit. That there, uh, all kinds of things become possible uh, thanks to that self-determination. They don't take away the all the liabilities that we've inherited, but uh, still, there's a space for significant creative freedom. So it's not at all the case that we have to be able to name all the terms of our existence in order to really have
0: self-determination. Well, thank you very much to both of you. That was a wonderful uh, first session in which to um, begin our discussion of the personalist vision. A look at these these foundational categories in which personalists think, um, and I think a lot of clarification already of the sort of questions that I see coming up in the um, in the in the chat here from our audience. So we're going to take just the briefest of breaks uh, before moving on to our next session in which we'll be looking at. Uh, two great personalist figures, uh, Carol Wojtyla and Dietrich von Hildebrand. So stay with us and we'll be continuing shortly.